This is, this is an interesting passage because uh, you're going to see, and, and I'm actually going to put it up here for you just to give you a teaser. Um, God is unfair. <laughs> That's a fun one to start with. I saw this on the internet. I, I'd like to say I came up with it. I didn't. I saw it on the internet. I, I, I pulled off the picture and put it in the slide uh, because the parable that we're going to take a look at in its initial reading, if, if, you, if you don't feel that way, there's something wrong with you. Um, it, it really is an odd parable that kind of throws you off a little bit. Uh, but we have to set it up before we get into it. And so with that, I'm going to pick up <clears throat> at verse 16 in chapter 19. We've already studied this, but I want to I show you how this parable comes to be and that Jesus teaches it. Do you remember the rich young ruler that came to Christ in chapter 19, verse 16? He says, good master, or good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, keep the commandments. He says, I kept them since my youth. He says, well, one thing you lack. He says, what is it? He says, sell all that you have, because he was rich, and then go, uh, then come and, and follow me. And he was very wealthy. He walked away sorrowful. And it, and it wasn't, as we studied in our previous text, it wasn't because he was wealthy and, and to follow Christ doesn't mean you have to get rid of all your wealth and then follow him. That's not the point of the story. It was the one thing that stood between him and a relationship with the Lord was his money. And uh, he just couldn't process that. And it really threw these guys on edge. Uh, after he had told this guy and he walked away sorrowful, he was so renowned because he was, he was a political leader. Um, Mark calls him, or no, no, Luke called him a ruler, which meant that he was a civic leader. And, and there, this is a man that's been elevated in their society. They look at him walking away sorrowful and they're thinking, how does anyone get into heaven? And so Jesus said to his disciples, Verse 23, surely I say to you that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And this just doesn't make any sense because all Jews recognize that you keep God's commandments. He blesses you. And a man who's blessed is a man who's keeping the commandments. A man who's blessed is a man who's keeping the commandments. This man's kept the commandments. He's wealthy and he can't be saved. Who then can be saved? It was baffling to them and they didn't know how to process it. So Jesus, verse 26, looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Lord, see, we've left all and have followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? (laughs) Kind of like, what's in it for me? What do we get? Now, there's two ways to look at this question. There's two ways to look at this question. One way is Peter saying, wait a minute, I've left everything. What do we get? This guy didn't leave anything and he's rich. What do we get? Or Lord, this is exciting. If that guy didn't do it, we did. So what do we get? You know, you seeing the difference? It's really how you ask it. It's kind of like, let's eat grandma. Let's eat grandma. It's a punctuation is everything on that. (laughs) Punctuation saves lives is what I saw. (laughs) So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So let me repeat that. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So this is confusing to him as it's confusing to us. Now, some people have used this verse over time, and in the over 30 years I've been in ministry, I've even seen men use it where it says, you know, I'm leaving my wife because I'm committed to the ministry. Eh, it doesn't work that way because he just spoke on divorce in the previous chapters. You don't get that. 
And, and you think of the apostle Paul, he leaves his wife to go. He says, honey, I'm, I'm going for a few days. I'm going to Damascus to go persecute Christians. And he, he says, I'll bring back a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread. That's not in the text, but I'm assuming he said that. And as he's heading to Damascus, the Lord hits him on, on the highway, knocks him off his high horse. He's blinded. He then goes into the wilderness. He's gone for three years. He comes back. He's totally on fire for the Lord. He's accepted Christ as the Messiah or Jesus as the Messiah. And and you can imagine his wife going, whoa, who are you? And what, you know, who, who stole my husband and brought you back? And, and the idea is he left her or she left him, excuse me. Now you'd think, well, she couldn't handle the ministry. That's not the way it works. Cause Paul would then go on to say in second Corinthians seven, um, you, you, there's, there's grounds for divorce by the abandonment of marriage by the non-believing spouse. But if they choose to stay, you stay with them. God's committed to marriage. He's not saying that you can only follow the Lord if you give up your wealth. You can only follow the Lord if you, you know, give up all your family. What he's saying is no relationship takes precedent over my relationship with you. That's it. And everybody has that one thing that is their pet thing that they just don't want to give to God. And it really is a thing that gets them up in the morning and it's more important to, to, to them than the Lord. And, and that's what the Lord is addressing. And they're all baffled and they're struggling over it. And then Jesus concluded by saying, but many who are first will be last in the last first. So <clears throat> you conclude chapter 19. And it's interesting that when you conclude chapter 19, it goes into 20 and you think, well, there's a chapter break. And so we begin a new chapter. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Folks came back. There were no chapters and no punctuation in the Greek writing. Uh, it, 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 it continues because it ends by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then chapter 20, verse one picks up, it says for the kingdom of heaven. So it's addressing the exact same thing that Jesus was just talking about. And so I want you to know that he is going to address Peter's question. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? We've left everything. That guy wasn't willing to leave his wealth. We've left everything. What's in it for us? And Jesus says, the first will be last and the last shall be first. And he says, let me tell you a parable to bring it all home to you, fellas. So you totally get it. And I pray it does for all of us today. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Matthew 20, picking up verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed, everyone say agreed. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, that's a day's wage. It's an honest day's wage for a denarius a day. He sent them into his vineyard and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Everyone say idle. It's the Greek word for your hands in your pocket, doing nothing idle. So they were idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. They didn't agree to any wages. He said, Hey, if you'll hire us, we're in. And so they went. Verse five, again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, which is five o'clock, six o'clock is, you know, it, it ends. That's, that's the, that's the 12th hour. So at five o'clock, he goes out again, uh, one hour before quitting time. And he saw others uh, standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So the last ones were the ones who agreed to a denarius a day, right? Or no, the first ones agreed to a denarius a day. The last ones didn't agree to anything. Are you tracking me? Okay. And beginning with the last to the first and when uh, verse nine, and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, who had only worked one hour, they each received a denarius. 
And when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And likewise, they received each a denarius. And they're like, wait, what? What? And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish? And everyone say with my own things. Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if you don't think God is unfair after that writing, then you're smarter than you look. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And as we see a parable that seems on the surface reading seemingly unfair and that some folks would work in the heat of the day and bear the burden and then others would come and just work an hour and they'd all get paid the same thing. Lord, that is hard to process. But Lord, we're so grateful that you reveal your characteristics to us and you allow us to understand you in a deeper and more profound way. And Lord, especially, I didn't even plan this, that you would make this message on communion Sunday. And I, I was just so grateful walking in and, and seeing everything set up for communion and realizing how you had ordained this. So Lord, I pray that you'd minister to our hearts and allow us to see the, the magnificence of your character and that you would reveal to us this parable that we would gain understanding. And so we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. God is unfair. Uh, in this parable, it appears as such that he's unfair. Um, and and, and there's, there's folks in the room. Um, and I know that I've been in your seat and I probably will be again where I've, I've kind of considered God to be unfair. And uh, some people don't like the hand they've been dealt. They don't like their station in life. They don't like their situation. They don't like their work environment. They don't like where they're living. They don't like who they're living with. They don't like it. They don't like what's happened to them. Where were you when that happened to me? God, why would you allow something like this to happen? We all have these questions. We've, we've come to think God capricious. Ted Turner, who started CNN, he, when his brother died, he had given up on God. Uh, God doesn't work that way. If God is good, how can there be evil in the world? Well, let me just set one thing straight. There's evil in the world because there's sinners. And the people responsible for, for evil is us. Now, if God wants to remove evil, he has to remove us. But he allows us to exist so that we can be reconciled to him and get it right. There's free will. We've chosen not to obey him. And, and, and there's still, you know, if a, if a child of my family decides to rebel and leave, they're still my child. They've just chosen not to be a part of our family. You track that? And so in his grace and his mercy, he allows us to be reconciled to him. And at times in our life, we look at things and we think that's unfair. And I remember uh, there was a movie my daughter and I watched uh, last night or the night before called The Beautiful Fantastic. Great movie if you haven't seen it. Great movie. And it's about this young girl who lost her parents when she was young, uh, had all kinds of phobias. She gets older and she ends up uh, living um, in a rental property that's right next door to a, a curmudgeon old guy uh, who is an avid gardener and hers has just gone to hell in a handbag and the garden is overrun. And she was allowed to rent this place so that she would take care of the garden and she didn't because she's so paranoid of going outside and it frightens her. And, and the, the, the agent of the landlord comes and says, if you don't get this garden in order in three weeks, you're going to be evicted. 
And so she's having to work to do this and, and interacting. And she comes to connect with the man next door who's curmudgeon And he gives her a book on gardening and they start to communicate together. And she's so frightened and you see this paranoia. But when she walks into his garden and sees it all beautiful and the flowers, and he's explaining them and what they do and when they appear and when they don't. And, and going through each of their unique characteristics, she's captivated by it. And he says to her, it is chaotic beauty. Let me repeat that. It's chaotic beauty. It's chaotic, yes, but it's beautiful. Now don't, he said, do not confuse chaos with catastrophe. Chaos is the tapestry of our life and the troubles that we have. And when given to the right circumstances, it creates beauty. But if you give up and you quit and you you just throw your fist in the air and give, give God, you know, parting orders, that's catastrophe. One can end up in beauty and the other is catastrophe. It's depending. And then when the scripture says in Romans 8, 28, all things, and the word in the Greek for all means all, all things that work together for good with those who love God and are called according to their, to their purpose. Even the tragis, tragedies in our life work together for good. There's times in my life I didn't like where I was and what I was going through. One of the hardest men I ever worked for, one of the most difficult bosses I've ever had, was the man who gave me the greatest gift, a work ethic. I didn't like it at the time. I thought it was unfair. And yet my life was profoundly changed by him. And so this is the picture. God is unfair. We all go through this in our course in life. And I wanted to show you something. I, uh, I went to college at Cal- California State University, Fresno. Uh, as you've often heard me refer to it as the Harvard of the San Joaquin Valley. They had an enology department there. They made wine, and uh, Gallo Wines uh, would pull many of their students from that department. And there were vineyards all around the area, including Madera. And I actually went to a church, came to Christ there, and went to a church in Madera. Got to know many of the farmers. I actually worked in an Armenian church for a number of years. And the Armenians there, many of them are farmers, and they have orchards, they have vineyards. And I got to participate in a harvest. Uh, I got to house sit for someone who had a vineyard. And I got to see this. And I learned a number of things uh, about harvest. One of the key aspects about a harvest in the San Joaquin Valley, and I remember this distinctly because I had gone to Fresno State uh, for a recruiting trip in the summer, and it was hot as could be, but I assumed it's going to be nicer in the, in the spring or maybe in the winter uh, if it's this hot in the summer. And I agreed, and I signed the papers, and I, I got a scholarship uh, as an athlete, and I remember coming from the grapevine for the very first time, dropping into the San Joaquin Valley. It was a beautiful Southern California day. And just as you start to descend into the, the valley, it was this tule thick fog. It was, it was awful. And you just drop into it, like dropping into milk. And, and you, you couldn't see maybe three cars in front of you. And it was that way all the way to Fresno. And the one thing I noticed is driving by all the orchards and vineyards, there was no leaves on the tree. The, the vineyards were all barren. It just looked like death everywhere, death and, and I just thought, where am I? And it was freezing. It was one of the worst winters. And I would come to realize how profound winters are there because the roots grow deep when there's no leaves on the tree. And, and, and the, it's so important for these, these vineyards. It's so important for the orchards. And I remember the harvest season. The harvest season is fascinating because they want to keep the grapes on the vine as long as possible so they can accumulate as much sugar because the sugar itself is what makes the, the uh, fermenting process for the wine and gives it that d- distinct flavor that everyone comes to appreciate. They also want to make raisins. And so you want to pull them off so that they can dry and they're sweet enough. So they're palatable and delicious. And in addition, you want to pull the the table grapes off so that they ship to market and they're sweet and delicious. 
And there's a very short window because if the rains come, the first thing is you've got to take the, 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 the grape clusters and lay them down. Then the sun has to dry them and then you have to pick them up. If the rain falls at any portion of that time, then mold sets in on all of your product and you lose everything. It's a very quick process. When you pull the grapes off, after you've tested to see the sugar content, you pull the grapes off, you've got to get them into refrigeration so that it slows down the process and then you can get them to being able to crush them and then make the, the juice that'll ultimately make the wine. For the produce that goes to market, same concept. You have to have people who are skilled because if you cut the vine in an improper capacity, you destroy the vine. So you have to have people who are intelligent. They understand the vine. They can harvest it. They know what to do with it. And they know they have a very short window. And it is, it's so vital. So they're skilled and it's, it's important. Now, the amount of money, having worked with some of these Armenians, the amount of money, first of all, you have to buy the land. Then you have to pr- uh, provide the 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 plants themselves, and you have to have equipment. You've got to have capital. You've got to have all the things necessary to run this. So it's a huge investment on their part, an enormous investment. What they rely on are laborers who come in and they've got two hands and, and a brain. They have no invested capital. They're just giving their time, but they understand what to do. And so there's a price for their, their effort and you've got to get it done quickly. So these are the grapes, and this is interesting. You can see it harvested, and, and you, you have to be careful that you don't bruise the fruit. You've got to know just what clusters to get. Is it a very exact uh, operation? And so you go, and you want to find day laborers. And you go over to Hampshire, you can find day laborers, and this is the same thing in the San Joaquin Valley. And the word idle is they just got their hands in their pockets. They're waiting for someone to hire them. Now, because their hands are idle, they're not doing anything. While the, the, the vineyard owner has been working and investing and putting out all kinds of resources, they're just relaxed and doing nothing. Their hands are idle. Now, God has given us two hands and a brain, and he wants us to produce. But if we're idle, we're not doing anything. He didn't create us to be idle. And, and when you work and you apply your hands, you gain resources. You gain capital. And, and people often say, what is money? And I've said this before. Money is the representation of the contribution you've made to society. So when I was going to Starbucks and I walked in, the guy said, hey, can I have a dollar? And I turned to the kid who was like in his young, early 20s. He looked fit, but he looked disheveled because he'd you know, been sleeping on the streets. I said, I'll give you money if you can tell me what money is. He says, it was a thing that you need to buy stuff with. I go, no. And he goes, bummer. <laughs> he goes, can you tell me what it is? I go, yeah. Money is the representation of the contribution that you've made to society. You've made no contribution, thus you have no money. And he goes, oh. I go, come on in. I'll buy you a cup of coffee with my money. I've worked hard. My hands weren't idle. And I'll get you a cup of coffee out of kindness. He understood a lesson that day. So if you go, you have a young, one of these young people go and mow Widow Johnson's yard. And you do it in the heat of the summer and you mow Widow Johnson's yard. And, and you get 20 bucks for your effort. And you go, I want to get those Nike shoes. hundred and something dollars. And you put your $20 down. The man says, Where'd you get $20 at your age? Well, I mowed Widow Johnson's yard. That's a very noble investment and contribution to society. Good for you. Go mow it four more times, and that equals what these are worth. And you go and do it, and you, you do it. And now you see the balance and the need for that. It's creating, uh, it, it's, it's creating a desire, and, and it's creating a profit. It's creating jobs. And this is the idea. You work, and you're benefited from it. So these guys are sitting idle, and, and the Lord goes out early in the morning, and he picks them, the, the vineyard owner. He picks them, and he says, come on out. 
He says, but we're going to agree to something. We're going to enter into a covenant. And the covenant is an idea with what the Israelites had early on in Genesis. Here's the agreement. You do this, I'll do this. You don't do this, I'll do this. And this is what I'll pay you. Is that okay? And they said yes, and they agreed on it. It was a contractual agreement or a covenant. A contractual agreement or a covenant. Now, with that being said, before I go further, let me share with you five things if you've ever been employed or wanted to be employed. You walk into a business and you say, who's in charge here? That's number one. Who's the owner of this place? What are they about? And you size it up. Who's in charge here? And the second question you ask when you walk into an operation is you say, to whom do I report or who will I be reporting to? I want to know the chain of command. I want to know who's in charge here and I want to know who I'll be reporting to. And then you ask this next question, what are the rules? What can I do and not do? What are the rules? And then you ask this question, what do I get for obeying the rules? And what do I not get for disobeying the rules? Or what do I get for disobeying the rules? What do I get for obeying the rules? What do I get for disobeying the rules? Let's lay this out right now. And then the final thing that you always ask when you go into an organization to be hired is, does this organization have a future? Right? I mean, you're working for a cable company right now that's struggling a little bit. Technology's changing. And you want to ask yourself, is there a future in this organization? So who's in charge here? Who do I report to? What are the rules? What happens if I obey or disobey? And is this place going somewhere? Well, this is the same thing. Because you want to know who's in charge, and he, he's the one who makes the agreement, and you agreed with him, and here's the rules. You work for a full day, you get a denarius. And he goes, I get that. I understand it. He says, you don't work all day, and you don't do well, and these are the rules. If you don't do them, this is what happens to you, and, and uh, there's going to be a harvest, and we've got plenty of grapes, so there's, there's a future here. And if you do well, I'll hire you next year. And so he goes out, and he hires these guys, and they agree to a denarius. And they start working and laboring, and they're picking the grapes, and they're working hard. And then what happens is the vineyard owner realizes, well, wait a minute, I'm running out of time. We're burning daylight. I'm not going to get these crops into the cool cave to, to chill. Um, I'm going to lose this opportunity. I'm not getting them on the ground fast enough. I'm concerned. I'm, I'm measuring the weather. I don't have satellite and that stuff, but I'm concerned that we're going to hit the rains. It happened this time two weeks last year. I got to be real careful. I better get some more workers. And so he goes back to the marketplace. He says, anybody want to work? And they're like, yeah, I'll work. Pulls his hand out of his idle pocket. He says, I'll work. He says, come on. How about you? Ah, I'll do it. Okay. I'll pay you whatever's fair. Okay. All right. I just want to work. I'm, I'm stoked. They bypassed this last time and you're going to hire me. I'm in. And he goes back at the third and the sixth day and he keeps it. And he says, Hey, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They bypassed me in the last time, but I'll do it this time. I got to bring food home to my family. I'm not going to have any wages. If you'll just give me anything, I'm, I'm in. And then he goes back at the 11th hour. The guys that are there like, man, this day's ruined. We're not going to go, Hey, Hey, I know there's an hour left in the day, but I'm looking for some guys. I'll, I'll take it. I, have, I, I got nothing to bring home. I told my wife we weren't going to miss this bill. I'll take it. Whatever you're, I'm in. I got to come home with something. All right, let's go. No agreement on funds. Just, are you willing? You bet I'm willing. Everyone's bypassed me. I'm idle. If you'll take me, I'll work. And they come. And they all begin to work. And then here comes the storm clouds. You can see the rain coming in. And now it's time to pay. And the vineyard owner says to his steward, listen, line them up this way. The ones that got here at the 11th hour, they only worked one hour. They were at the very last minute. Those, I want you, I want to pay them first. And then we're going to go all the way down the line to the very first ones that we hired. He's like, boss, are you sure? He goes, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And so you can kind of see as they begin to pay the guys with the clean hands, barely maybe touch four or five crates of grapes. They didn't even get their hands dirty. 
And it goes all the way down the line. The longer they've worked, the dirtier their hands are. And he starts handing out the denarius to each of them. And if you think that that's fair, let me just move your hand further down. Are you tracking me? Does anyone look at that and go, yeah, I'm good with that. I mean, that's a little disconcerting. Can I get an amen? They agreed. The first guy worked an hour. was like, I'm stoked. I got a denarius. The last guy's like, this is stupid. <laughs> Remember what he said in verse 15? He said, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? What he's saying is you're covetous and, and, and you're upset because I'm good. It's my stuff. You agreed to a denarius. I paid you what I agreed to. You're upset because I'm generous. It's my stuff. Pause for emphasis. Five questions. Who's in charge? To whom do I report? What are the rules? What do I get for obeying or disobeying? Does this organization have a future? All right. That's for companies. Let's go to the earth. Who's in charge here? Yeah, we're living on his dirt, breathing his air, drinking his water, and eating his food. He's in charge here. It doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. He's in charge here. And the idea is we report to him. We're going to give an accounting of our life when our heart stops beating. We're going to stand before him and give an accounting. We report to him whether you think you do. The Bible says that every religion in the world leads to, to God. Because the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. We'll stand before God. Whether we're Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or Christian, we'll stand before God. But only one religion leads to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we will give a reporting. And what are the rules? The rules are this. Don't do this, 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 and this. And if you do, you die. He also says in a covenant to the Israelites, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, if you do this, your vats will be full. If you don't do this, your vats will be empty. I'll bless you on this earth. What do I get for obeying or disobeying? He lays it out. And then does this organization have a future? You bet it does. Just read Revelation. Uh, I guess I can give a synopsis of Revelation. God wins. <laughs> Genesis chapter three, then uh, Adam to Adam, God said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, meaning that her authority and her, your relationship with her is more important than your relationship with me. Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. I told you the rules. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth to you for you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. You work, you eat, you work, you eat till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for dust. You are and dust. You shall return. That's why the Anglican say ashes, to ashes, dust to dust at a funeral, right? And we always sprinkle the dirt over the coffin. And the idea is you want to be right with me? Well, first there's a curse on the ground because of your disobedience, but you will toil. And when you toil, you will eat. Work is now going to be a reflection of your effort, not to be idle, but to do things my way. It goes all the way to the new Testament, second Thessalonians three ten. for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. The requirement is you work, you eat. Oh, wait a minute. 
This, is, this week is the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. So communism and the Soviet Union, or USSR, 100 years ago this week, they experimented on this idea of a utopian society. The only problem with a utopian society is it's filled with sinners like you and me. And we are innately selfish. And we're thinking, well, we're going to give all of the production equipment to the central government and everyone will be equal. Right? It doesn't matter with effort. I'm sitting idle with my hands in my pocket and you're working your tail off. You guys are both in class together. You don't do anything. You don't do your homework. You don't even crack the book. You nap in class. If you ever make it to class, you're getting an F. If they had a lower grade, they'd give it to you. You are so diligent. You work your tail off. You have read everything, listened to every lecture. You've done every bit of homework. You've studied voraciously. You're getting an A and it can't get any higher. They'd add extra pluses, but you were killing it. Well done. Now we're going to apply socialism or communism. I really, you, you know, you have an F and you have an A. So from each according to his ability to each according to his need, I'm going to take two grades from you, give you a C and I'm going to bring you up two grades to a C. So you have a C and you have a C. We're all equal. Hey, isn't that great utopia? You tracking me? And what's your response going to be? Hey, where's my C? Why work? And you're looking going, why even bother working? So production decreases. I'm just going to sit and wait idle because I'm going to get the same thing he's going to get. It doesn't work. And so what happens? A nation implodes. You don't think that's the case? Fourth greatest economy in the Western Hemisphere was Venezuela. And they decided to embrace socialism. Now look at them. Their teenagers are prostituting themselves because they're starving. You can't get Coca-Cola because they have no sugar. You can't get bread because they have no yeast. Production's gone. Nobody's working. The place is imploded. And what has happened? All the politicians that promised utopia have moved out like they did in Detroit. And the only reason why these politicians in California haven't moved out is because we haven't. And that's because California's so stinking beautiful. But I tell you what, I'm getting tired of it. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? So the idea is, if you work, you should be benefited by your effort. Would you agree, Mr. A? I agree. And you need to pick it up, man. <laughs> the reason why you have nothing is because you've made no contribution to society. You see, for wealth to be created, you must bless somebody else. Ooh. We've been told if you're 40 years of age or younger, you've been told that capitalism's evil. No, no, no. Capitalism only works when you create production. When you bless them. Let me give you an example. How many people in the room, and I want your hands up. Do not mess with me. How many people in the room have a smartphone? Raise your hand. Now keep them up. 30 years ago, how many of you had a smartphone? We had one person last service. It was that Korean War radio thing, that $180 a minute, but I had it. Steve Jobs, did he put a gun to your head to buy that iPhone? iPhone 10's coming out. Did he come and put a gun to your head and say, buy this phone? No, no, no. He created a product that met a need. I can find out where I am. I can do ways and see uh, where the traffic is. I can download sports scores. I, I, I'm going to Israel without a Bible because I have five versions of it on my phone. At each of the sites, I'll be teaching from my phone. What an incredible gift this is in technology. I can access every library in the world from this little portable device that the man put together. He invested. 
It required an enormous amount of work, late nights. He had to go and find equipment over in this portion of the world and equipment in this portion of the world and find this silver from here and this from there and put it all together. And he met a need through production and innovation. And as a result, guess what? He gets a profit. He gets a profit. And that profit is reinvested to make other innovations and also meet more needs. And that's the beauty of capitalism is that we have convenience. It's unbelievable. People, if we get a chance to move locations, there's going to be countless organizations that are going to be calling us, asking us if they can present their chairs and how their chairs are more special than anyone else's chairs and the competition. They're going to fight for it. And this is what God gave us. When we labor, we're blessed. When we're idle, we get nothing. There's no contribution to society. It was designed for this purpose. Look at this. Unlimited greed for gain is not capitalism. Let me repeat that. Unlimited greed for gain is not capitalism. True capitalism applies restraint and rational tempering of greed's irrational impulse. Capitalism pursues profit and renewed profit to generate innovation. Capitalism is concerned with production and innovation. With possessions come distractions from the pursuit of a righteous life. So the problem is when you start getting money, you start thinking, well, I don't need God anymore. And like we're going to see with another parable, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. I've got it all stored up. I don't have to do anything. I can relax in leisure. And Jesus says, beware, tonight your life will be required of you. And, and poor is the man who is, is rich in the things of the world, but poor in the things of God. And if you think that capitalism is about profit and, and living an idle life, and once I get it, I'm going to get my 40-foot Winnebago, and I'm going to go eat in the buffets in Vegas, you don't understand God's will for your life. It's not about our leisure. It's about ministering to people and innovation and coming up with new ideas on how to bless them and, and be a participant in their life and to encourage them. And this is that idea. This is what God desires. But here's one problem. Everyone has a passion or many passions. Everyone has desires. Wake up in the morning. We're hungry. Can I get an amen on that? You wake up, you're hungry. Now I got two options when I wake up in the morning, when I'm hungry sometimes. My favorite, and you don't have to agree with me. This is just me. My favorite food, and it's been since I've been a bachelor, is cold pepperoni pizza. (laughs) I know. You've given up on me. So... Kids came over, let's say Wednesday night, we had a bunch of kids after church and they all came over. We got pizzas. There's a bunch left over. And I'm like, yeah, pizza's in the fridge. And then my wife likes to make for me this, and my daughter, a protein shake. <laughs> it's this low in calorie, high, high, in, high in protein, real gritty and, and chalky. <laughs> Same flavor every morning. And then it makes me healthy and, and I feel good through the course of the day and I, I work longer and harder. But the pizza is like, yeah. And I eat that. And I get a carbo load. I gain some weight. I take a nap. I'm worthless through the course of the day. So we have a passion. You can have this or you can have this. They're both, they're both a desire. You're hungry. But one is grounded in what Aristotle called the thinking virtue. There's a doing virtue. You want to pursue this passion. But the thinking virtue is you don't want pizza because you're going to get fat. You won't be around for your grandkids. So temper this and submit it to the righteousness of God. You're like, okay, I get that. 
Every decision we make is based on that. Who's in charge here? God. What does he want? Every decision's based on that. And if I do this, I prosper. If I don't do this, I fail. Those are the rules. So if you think that capitalism is unlimited greed, you don't understand the economy of God. Wealth is bad ethically only insofar as it is a temptation to idleness and sinful enjoyment of life. And its acquisition is bad only when it is with the purpose of living merrily without care for righteousness. Wealth is a performance of duty in a righteous calling is morally permissible. God likes it when you've gained something because you've been doing the right thing and you're going to use that for doing more right things. He can't bless you enough. But if you want to gain it and then you get to that point and I put up with this boss long enough or I put up with this job long enough and I just forget everybody else and I'm done. And I don't want to help the kids. I don't want to help the grandkids. I, don't want, I just want to live on an island. I don't want anyone bugging me. And I, and, I, and I just want to drink alcohol until I'm obliterated and I want to forget life. That's not the point. Wealth becomes a burden as it was for the rich young ruler. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. God doesn't want us to be idle. He's given us capitalism. Capitalism is innovation. Capitalism is profit. Capitalism is for the purpose of moral responsibility to bless society. For wealth to be generated, two people have to benefit. And you must keep moral constraint on that. The, the doing virtue and the thinking virtue. You combine the two and you operate in the context of righteousness. The way that capitalism is presented to you in the school is not a biblical concept of capitalism. Capitalism is found in Genesis when you work for the sweat of your brow. It's found in 2 Thessalonians and it's found in the chapter we're reading and many other places throughout the scripture. So I will kind of wrap it up and get prepared for communion by simply asking a couple of things. Can God do what he wants with what is his? Remember what he said, I choose to give this last workers I've give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Some of you God's given better gifts to than he's given to me. I've been working for the Lord for over 30 years. And some of you today, it may be the first time you give your heart to the Lord and you join at the 11th hour. And I can be upset about that because, you know, you're, you could be just as old as me and you've been partying and drinking and doing all this stuff and you, you get into heaven and I get into heaven, but I've been working hard serving the Lord for 30 years while you've just been, you know, killing yourself. I can be embittered to that. But the reality is, it's a joy. It's kind of what the Lord was saying to Peter. There's two ways to say what you're saying. Are you stoked by what's awaiting you? Are you complaining about the wages? In this parable, one author writes, the vineyard is his and all the money belongs to him. He didn't have to hire those workers at all. It was a gift to be hired in the first place. What right does a worker have to demand more from him? Absolutely none. You can unionize. But the reality is, who owns the vineyard? Who put the capital out? The greater the risk, the greater the reward. They don't have to do anything. The only commodity you possess are two hands and a brain and time. 
And so if I'm starting a business and I'm an entrepreneur and I start the business and I invest and I get the loan from the bank and I buy the equipment, I set it all up and I do everything and now I've got payroll to meet and I've got to deal with the state mandates and the laws and all the employment laws and, and you know, everything. And I'm up at night trying to figure this out, keep my family fed, get my kids to school and do all this. And you show them and go, hey, can I get a job? You're like, yeah, yeah, come on in. Okay, what, what, how much is it? I'll pay minimum. Okay. Okay. We'll get to work. Oh, what, what do I got to do? You got to sweep. Oh, okay, I'll sweep. Now, you have no cares in the world. You're just sweeping. While I'm up worrying, and I've got all the investment, and everybody's invested, and they're all waiting for me, and you're just sweeping. At the end of the day, you get your paycheck. I don't know if all the bills are going to be paid. I got to make sure the employees are met. I got to make sure all the agreements are made. And yet, you, you, and you get a minimum amount of work for a minimum amount of investment. The guy who makes the greatest risk is the one who gets the greatest reward. He's got the most on the line. Now, if you want to live your life working hourly, praise the Lord, you're not idle. But you're only going to get so wealthy because you only have so many hours in a day, 40, 50, 60 hours in a day, right? So some of the things that you're going to have to do when you're young is start to set some of that money aside and save it so that you can invest in capital and take that risk to get a greater reward. Start your own business. Part of that's going to come with education. You go to school, you front load it, you start to understand the principles of economics. And by the way, economics, two words, oikos and nomos. Oikos meaning house, nomos meaning law, house law. It was a simple term just simply saying that you have got to be responsible for taking care of your family. How are you going to do that? Some of you can do it hourly and others of you do it in another capacity. And this is the whole point. God wants us to realize that you have these two hands to work with. You want more? Take a greater risk. We're going to see the parable of the talents later on as we go through this. Here's another one. Here's a question according to the parable. Is God generous? You bet he is. He said in the parable, do you begrudge my generosity? I gave them my own money. I'm being generous. You agreed to a denarius. You wanted to work for a day's wage. I wanted to give that. I can be generous because I have a surplus. And the root cause of frustration is that the morning workers, they despise the generosity of God. Why? Because they weren't the primary recipients and they worked more hours and they felt more deserving of his generosity. We're all struggling with that. And if you aren't, your heart's not beating. Even though I'm going through all this, people are still not convinced. Are his ways like our ways? No, his ways are not our ways. So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Apart from God's grace, we're all hardwired to think me first. Yes? What about me? To view the world in a sense of wages. I work this hard. I earn this amount of benefits. But God's ways are not our ways. The last have the greater benefits. For those who think God owes them something, he often is harsh with them. For those who feel undeserving and unworthy, he delights in blessing. It's the problem of comparison. And these, these younger folks get it. Everybody in school compares themselves to the other person, and you only feel popular based on comparison. It's a vicious environment. And these workers did the same thing. Those morning workers had been the only ones in the vineyard that they, there wouldn't have been a problem, but they had to compare themselves with the folks that only worked an hour. And comparison started to really rock their world. And you look around, it's hard to be in a church in a capitalistic society where some people have more than you and you're going through some struggles. 
And you start to resent their wealth. And for those of you who are wealthy, I got news for you. One of the great problems of being wealthy is you, you, you think you earned it and you're a self-made man. What Really, what part of yourself did you make? God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And if you think that you're rich because you're super smart and it's because you're special, you're completely wrong. I can prove it to you. God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He made me the pastor. <laughs> now, this, is, this, is, this is hilarious to me. My classmates from high school are all laughing at you. Why would you go to that church? You know, you, you work 30 years in the ministry and then somebody younger comes along and they get a position that took you 10 years to get and they get it in five months. And you can resent it or rejoice. Let's talk about unfairness and we'll close with this as we prepare for communion. There's something that's very unfair and it's not this parable. You want to talk about unfair? I'll tell you what's unfair. These vineyard workers long to be treated fairly and they complain that the wages were unfair and that they deserve to be treated better. Here's the problem. They were already treated better than they deserved. It wasn't their property. He didn't have to hire them. They didn't invest. They didn't own it. He could have bypassed and picked anyone. And the same is true of you and me. In actuality, we deserve one thing. But we have a paycheck coming to us. The Bible says we're going to get some wages. We've got a paycheck coming to us. It says, in a sense, the, the only wages that we're going to get in this life, apart from Christ, the only wages we're going to get is death. Wrath. I want to read to you out of Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sinned. Struggle for everybody. This is going to be my 50,000th time telling it. Get used to it. Here's the target. There's the bullseye. You shoot the arrow, it lands over here. Archers call it the sin distance. How far the arrow has fallen from perfection. If there's anyone in the room who's perfect, that means you're without sin. And you're free to go. But when you stand and walk out, you're, just remember, you're also a liar. <laughs> We've all failed. And he's in charge. And it's his rules. And he showed us to obey, disobey. Even Adam and Eve screwed it up. You want what you deserve? I'll tell you what, it's called cosmic treason. It's called wrath. It's called punishment. It's called damnation. Separation from God for all eternity because you said, listen, I'm going to live on your earth, drink your water, breathe your air, eat your food, and tell you to get lost. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't even want to acknowledge your existence. And God says, I'll give you what you want. And by the way, for those of you who think you're going to party in hell with your friends, hell is everything that God isn't. And heaven is everything that God is. Excuse me, heaven is everything that God is. God is good. He's loving. Hell is the opposite. 
unquenchable fire. It's miserable. Listen, Christianity would be so much easier if I didn't have to talk about hell. But the person who talked more about hell than anyone else was Jesus because he never wanted anyone to go there. That's why he left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to die in your place so that the only way you could get to hell was to step over that cross and say, screw you, God. You want fair? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. That's your paycheck. Everybody's lined up to get it. All you gotta do is stay idle, stay away from the Lord, and when your heart stops beating, you'll get your paycheck. If you desire a fair God, as the morning workers did, here's what that means. Everyone receives the wages they earned. In this case for us, it's death, eternal death. Everyone except one person. The only righteous one to ever step step foot on this planet and walk without sin was Jesus Christ. He's the only one who would receive a perfect life. He's the only one who would receive all the benefits that come with that. All of us, our wages is death, wrath. But you know what? He, that's not how it happened. Instead, and this is, you know, let's talk about unfair. Instead, God chose to lay the punishment of the unrighteous on the only righteous one in human history. He punished the innocent for the crimes of the wicked. He forsook the holy one and welcomed the sinner. I don't know of, an, uh, of a more unfact in all of human history. A holy God died in my place for the sins I committed. He suffered on the Via Dolorosa and, and the way of pain. He endured mocking and humiliation. He was the creator. We were the creature. We mocked and humiliated him, spit on him and crucified him. And he died so that the penalty could be paid so I could be set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. A sinless holy God died for me when my wages for my idleness was death. You want fair or unfair? The parable exposes the human heart of pride. If you identify with the complaints of the morning workers... Here's what it's revealing in you. You've believed a lie that God owes you something more than wrath. You've believed the lie that you think you've earned your favor with God and that your standing with him is based on works. You've believed the lie that you think your sin isn't as bad as another's. You've believed the lie that you perceive yourself to be better than others. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of being upset by the gracious heart of God towards others. We need to repent of looking down on the sins of others when we ourselves are capable of the same evil apart from his grace. I like this. Praise be to our God that he isn't fair and doesn't give us what we deserve. He isn't fair, but he is just. Sin never goes unpaid for. He always punishes evil. But in his grace, he satisfied his justice while pardoning sinners through the bloody sacrifice of a perfect sin offering, Jesus the righteous. And then I close with this last verse out of 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. You know what I love about this parable the most? I love the 11th hour. 
The Bible says it's appointed once for man to die, then judgment, and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know when tomorrow comes. I'm leaving here right after the service, catch a plane to go to Israel. I may, I may see you in the next life. I have no idea. I don't know. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. For some of you, this is the 11th hour. Some of you, you've got years and years ahead of you. You don't know, though. But this is a fascinating thing. Up to this point, if you've been living idle, sitting in the marketplace, and God's been wanting you to bless other people's lives and it's been all about you, he comes today and you say, you know, I've got every reason not to work and I don't want to work and I don't want to and I don't want to. And God says, why? And we've got every excuse and every reason. And God says, I can empower you and strengthen you to do my purposes. Because when you're idle, the Bible says, come to me, all you are burdened, heavy laden. The bills add up when you're idle. So do the burdens. And the Lord says, I've come to set you free. I've come to make you about my business. I want you to come into my vineyard. I want you to work for me. But you understand my past. And, and there's only an hour left in the day. This is a really good deal. Take it. But you have to know who's in charge and what the rules are. And the reason why he's going to bless you in the 11th hour, which is today, is because of this. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is his body. It's a representation that was broken when he was beaten. And the reason why he was beaten was so that the blood, the cup, could be shed because blood is the life force of the human body. As it poured out, that was the price that had to be paid, the wrath of God. The blood of Christ poured out over all of our sin. He paid the wages. We're now his. We've been purchased with the price, the holy blood of God. And this is the 11th hour. He says, come to my vineyard. Abide in me, I'll abide in you. You'll be fruitful. I want to bless you and change your life. Or do you want to just sit worthless in the marketplace while the world beats you up? And if you despise this and you think that's too easy to believe, it wasn't easy. It's easy for you and for me, but it it wasn't easy for the Lord. You don't earn your salvation by what you did and quit complaining about it. People come to Christ by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he's come that you might have life and life more abundant. And finally, if you believe in your heart, and you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you're saved. You're hired. It's a done deal. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to do an altar call. I'm just going to do it this way. If those words resonated with you and it, it applied and you're saying, yep, I want to be hired in the 11th hour. I receive Jesus as my savior. You're your boss. You're in charge. And I want to live according to your rules. And I want to obey you. And I got a great future awaiting me. And Lord, thank you that I couldn't give up enough to get what I'm getting. And I know that whatever I've given, you're going to give it back a hundredfold. If that's you, then the way you're going to express that faith is when we take communion, you're going to come forward to take communion. It's that simple. I don't need to see it. The Lord knows your heart. And this is a public expression of faith when you come to the communion table. And what we'll do is in a moment, I'm going to pray and the worship team will come up And the ushers will dismiss you by row. And they'll give you the cup, and then you'll take the bread. 
And you go back to your seat. And you just commit the transaction to the Lord. Take the bread first. That's the order because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. But if you screw up the order, it still works. So let's pray. Have the worship team come up. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for this parable of the vineyard workers and the vineyard owner and your mercy and your grace. And that truly, Lord, the first will be last and the last shall be first. And that's the economy of God's grace. Thank you that we don't get what we deserve. That's, that's judgment. Mercy is not getting what we deserve and grace is getting what we don't deserve. That not only do you not give us wrath, but then you give us your son and you give us life, life more abundant with a purpose that our hands are no longer idle, but serving mankind. What a wonderful God you are. And that seems wholly unfair that you would do that for folks like us. Lord, we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We humble ourselves on the side of the Lord and he lifts us up. And you say, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll put you about my kingdom's business. And so, Lord, would you do that in every heart present in this room? Be glorified now as we stand in faith to worship you as we take communion in your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.